So welcome to All About Aging. I'm Amy Brown filling in for Peg Cruikshank. Peg has been on hiatus, but we're hoping she'll be joining us today for at least a few minutes to fill us on, in on how she's doing and also to talk about the book we'll be discussing today for which she wrote the foreword, Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in Stories of Later Life, which was just released by Rutgers University Press. We're talking with the author, Dr. Ellen Lem today. Dr. Lem is a professor of English and the Honors Program Coordinator at the University of Wisconsin. And we are recording this show via Zoom on September 11th. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And what a perfect, appropriate show for, for us to discuss the book. Absolutely, yes. And, and hopefully, and Peg would be, um, as a lot of listeners may not be aware, a perfect host for this. I'm filling in, trying to fill her shoes because she's unable to do this right now. But she'll explain that more if and when she's able to join us today. Uh, for those of you who have not read Peg's bio or heard her mention it on the air, Peg it has a master's in gerontology, and she's taught courses on women's aging at the University of Maine and the University of Southern Maine. She's taught all over the country, really. Her book, Learning to Be Old, Gender, Culture, and Aging, was named one of the best books on human rights in 2014 by the Meyer Center for Human Rights in Boston. And it is cited extensively in Gray Matters, the book we're going to be discussing today. Uh, Peg also authored or edited an anthology of literary works on aging titled Fierce with Reality. So she would be the ideal person to be hosting today. She's unable to do that. So I'm jumping in here. But like I said, if she is able to jump on this Zoom call at some point, we'll get her talking with us for as long as she's able to. Um, but reading from Peg's forward to set this up and uh, Ellen Lem, the author who's with us today, I just want to let you know I don't do very many book interviews because they I won't do one unless I've read the entire book. And uh, so it's a commitment of time that I don't always have, but I'm actually really glad that I read this one. It's very interesting. I, I thought it might be more a textbook, but it's not. It's very readable. Um, and reading from Peg's foreword, Peg said, quote, the book's range of topics is impressive. Parent-child relationships, housing, sexuality, living alone, gender differences, work, retirement, money issues, dementia, and death. Books on aging cover some of these topics, but none I know of takes up all of them, end quote. That, uh, that is from Peg. How did you... How did you and Peg connect, and how did you come to have her write a foreword for your book? Yeah, it is kind of a, a fun story. Well, um, I did read her book, Learning to Be Old, and it really blew me away. I mean, I, you know, I read books all the time, and I never had a sense where, uh, in the same way, where I felt like a book really changed my thinking. She had so many interesting original ideas about aging, and so... Um, I was using the book in the classroom in a class I was teaching uh, humanities and aging class. And I thought, I'm just going to try to send her a letter to just say, thank you for your work. And I've really never done that before, other than when I was a, a junior in high school and tried to write J.D. Salinger, who never wrote me back, of course. <laughs> yeah, like, J.D. Salinger know, is like setting the bar pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. so I do have the a little bit recluse. of a past of like stalking authors. But um, anyway, I didn't have great information from her. I tracked different addresses. And then I forgot about it, did not hear from her. Um, and I thought, that's fine. You know, 
maybe my my note reached her, maybe it didn't. And then um, I got an email and it was a very cryptic email. It was about to delete it as spam because it just had some letters and numbers and it didn't have her name in it. And then I was, I thought, no, I'll read it. And it was, it was, it was Margaret Crookshank, you know, who had, who had somehow gotten my letter. And so we had been communicating. We had been sharing book ideas about um, on aging. Um, I would gave a conference paper. She looked at it. So we just had to establish this really um, rewarding communication with each other. And then uh, this project went from just conference papers and smaller works to a book. And I thought, well, it's a long shot, but who would be a better person than the, the individual who really shaped my thinking on the subject? So she was willing. Um, I loved her forward. And I'm just so pleased to have uh, her name on the cover along with mine because, uh, as you said, the book references a lot of her ideas kind of from beginning to end. Well, and, and others as well. It's great bringing together a lot of different writers. And you uh, write citing A. Jen Poo in The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom and Changing America from 2015, that there have never been as many people over age 65 in the U.S. as there are presently. And moreover, the trend will continue since every eight seconds an American turns 65. And by 2015, projections estimate there'll be twice the number of those 65 compared to the, quote, very young. Uh, yet books on aging are scarce and the way aging is portrayed in pop culture is problematic. Is that basically the motivation for writing Gray Matters or was there a specific event or situation that pulled you in that direction? Yeah, I, I, I was definitely influenced by, by some of the sources. Um, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal um, was also a book that was very eye-opening. I think what I took from Being Mortal was the fact that a person could write about this time of life, that it needs more attention, um, that one could bring in sort of the personal and the research, and that people were receptive to learning about it. So I think that um, the, the literary sources helped influence me. But I also, um, I do have a lot of 80-year-olds in my life, a lot of family members, uh, relatives. I work out usually in the morning in the gym at the Y, and there's a I have a whole host of like friends who who I work out with, but they're on the track who are also in their 80s. And so uh, the combination of actually having connections with people in this time of life, and then simultaneously, as you said, seeing like horrible caricatures uh, in so many places. And uh, I really wanted to kind of understand that better. And also to, to kind of appease people's worries because uh, so many people I know read getting older and I didn't really understand it because I've always just been, well, you know, one more year is one more year. Like, you know, thank you. Um, so uh, I think that that was partly too. I wanted to know why people that I know who are otherwise wise and sensible have you know, a terrible fear of, of, you know, becoming older. And so I really wanted to get at the bottom of that as well and kind of resolve some of these contradictions. Like how could 
that because eventually in the research, I found a lot of contradictions. Some people think retirement is amazing. Some, some people find it extremely depressing. Some people feel menopause changed them. Some people said menopause doesn't even exist. I don't even, you know, I don't even know what they're talking about. So that, that made me curious as a researcher too. I love, I love mysteries. I love trying to, to put together um, divergent viewpoints. And so that was a real challenge. And you surveyed uh, 200 people over age 65. What was that process like? Yeah, um, I definitely wanted to make sure that in this book that I ha- we heard the voices of people who are older. I did not want to be, I'm 56 years old. I don't want to be a 56-year-old person. Like, this is what it's like. You know, I didn't want, I didn't want that. I didn't want just the gerontology research to nominate for my literary cultural examples. So um, my mom, who is a retired psychologist, uh, who's in her 80s, she designed the original survey um, with me. And then I kind of worked with some students and they developed it further. And we got it out to a lot of people in different forms. We had a hard copy one so that people could just fill it out. So senior centers, people did it, some uh, senior residences, but then there was also, for people who, who felt comfortable with the technology, there was a link as well. And we used a method kind of like a snowball effect where um, I sent it out to some people, but then they sent it out to others. So eventually the survey did spread, I don't know about to every state, but I know coast to coast. I know that it, it was on the East Coast. I know it was on the West Coast. Um, uh, for sure, there was a, a lot in the Middle West uh, where I live. Uh, so uh, the questions were open-ended and a lot of people wrote quite a bit. So I was able to incorporate that into the book. Some of the questions were um, asking people uh, what advice would they give their 20-year-old self, um, what they fear the most, um, what their social lives are like, uh, do they experience ageism, um, is money a concern? Uh, one question that really brought out a lot of very poignant answers were, what are the losses? Um, and people talked about losing children, uh, you know, what it was like to, to still be here and to have your children pass away. So uh, people answered really honestly. They talked about stories of dealing with uh, spouses or parents with dementia, their experiences with nursing homes. So I really learned a lot. And as I, I think I say somewhere in the book, those responses I feel like are the heart of the book because they kept me true to my subject. I, even the topics I picked, were where did I feel that the the voices in the surveys gave me the most information? You know, rather than saying like, okay, I'm going to have a topic on health, I'm going to have a topic on this. You know, I didn't dictate it. I let the surveys dictate where did where did people feel they had the most to share on the topic, and then I wanted to bring that richness in and combine it with a lot of the cultural text to see where people were aligned, where there may have been departures. Right, so you've done sort of a uh, survey of 
pop culture to some extent, and, and not just pop culture, but historically to um, more serious literature and looking at also things like, uh, I always forget if it's Frankie and Grace or Grace and Frankie. The, yeah, Grace uh, and Frankie. Yeah, and, yeah. and programs like that that are, are that are still on now and how they portray people and how things have changed over time. Definitely. They? I mean, the, those are important. I mean, who hasn't seen the Golden Girls, for example? Right. Um, right. You know, it, and I just understand they're now making um, one with an African-American cast. So they're redoing the Golden Girls oh. with an African-American cast. So I think that should be interesting. But um, we do look to our culture and get messages about it, um, acceptance and rejections of all different kinds of mores. And so I feel I'm always interested in culture and what are the ideas out there that they are telling people and how culture can be used for good and how it's not always used in that way. I bring in some examples of, you know, shows like Family Guy, um, retreating um, older sexuality and yeah can you yeah, talk just, about that a little bit more I mean I I've seen maybe one episode of Family Guy ever I didn't even realize it had been on for I think you write 20 years or something right. it's been on a long time but the descriptions that you gave were really disturbing and it almost seemed like it's it's a last bastion of okay to make fun of kind of exactly right and uh, you know I got those from my son, they have a son in high school and a son in college. And so um, the nice thing is this project was going on. They would feed me <laughs> sources like, you got to take a look at that. So even the BoJack Horseman, uh, which, you know, who would think about that show, a talking horse actor um, would have something about Alzheimer's, but that actually had a very uh, effective treatment of it. But um, they also told me some of the the some of the really bad examples of it. And I do see how that influences the way people think. Um, there is some kind of strange cultural phenomenon that we think sexuality in older people is gross. Well, how did that happen? How do you know, it's not, it's not natural to think of, of sexuality as gross. I mean, you know, we use sexuality in advertisement and so many things, but there's the messaging of it. And when I did see some of that show, and I know it's a satire, it's making fun of everything, but I don't think it's very helpful. I mean, especially when the research shows that if people can have intimacy in their life in any way in the later years, it's helpful for their mood, for their health, it's positive. So why make anyone, you know, feel self-conscious that they're doing something like wrong or gross and or dangerous um, if they if they attempt to have any kind of physical intimacy right. they're gonna I think have in a heart the, attack. yeah have a heart attack or break each other or something right exactly yeah so uh, you know I think it's really problematic because a lot of the writers who were still having intimate relationships later in their years they were so life affirming they really helped them to deal with some of the other challenges in life. So I really wanted to get that message out to sort of counter uh, the examples that we have in pop culture. But, you know, and I, I think one thing that's been surprising to me was that it's not really just limited to pop culture. Um, I was reading a literary fiction that had come out 
just a month or two ago. It's called All My Mother's Lovers. And it was a very progressive book in some ways in that the narrator um, was, described in great detail her lesbian relationships, you know, in kind of graphic detail. And then at one point she meets a man that her mother is intimate with and says, oh, so disgusting, imagining my mom with this person. And I thought, wow, how unenlightened. (laughs) (laughs) Like you want to break barriers and show in in literary fiction, um, you know, the importance of love is love in any form. And then, you know, you pull out of your out of your hat some sort of prejudicial, you know, idea that would make people feel badly about um, thinking that sexuality is supposed to end when you, you know, stop having gray hair or something. Right, right. Uh, Let me just remind listeners, you're listening to All About Aging on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown filling in for Peg Cruikshank, who, if she is able, will join us for a few moments. We're taping via Zoom on September 11th. And we're talking with Dr. Ellen Lem, the author of the new book, Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. And I think what we're starting to touch on now, which there's many other things I want to talk about too, but this is sort of an underlying theme in all of this, is is ageism and how it's just very much right there and accepted and like I said earlier, sort of like a last bastion of something that's acceptable to poke fun at. Um, in fact, I've, when I've heard ageism, the term ageism used in recent years, it's often been about young people being discriminated about because they're young rather than the other way around. And it's perceived that people who are older have power and at least up until a, cer- up until a certain age. And then beyond that, that uh, people are either stereotyped as being sort of daughtery, old, silly in the way fuddy-duddy kind of things or just just gross and disgusting physically, as you're talking about with some of those examples in uh, television recently. Um, is, what does that say about us as a society? Is there any, uh, as you're as you were researching this and talking to people, indication that uh, we may be about to get to a point where we start to say, I mean, it's just been recently, for example, that people who are heavy have started being more uh, body positive, that that's been just moved into popular culture and people are more aware of that and uh, not fat shaming and so forth. Are we almost at a point where people are going to stop with the stereotypes, mostly negative, but even some of the positive stereotypes about aging and realize that people are individuals? It's, it's a really good question. Um, it, it really is. Um, yeah, I think we are less further along because I don't think people realize what ageism is. Um, and I noticed that even with the surveys, a lot of people would say, oh, no, I don't experience ageism. But then elsewhere, it's like a I'm trying to look as young as possible so I can, I can keep my job because if they find out that I'm old, then 
that they feel not my age. I'm not going to be looking at my job. So there was these interesting like contradictions of like, wait, you are experiencing ageism if mm -hmm. you have to like hide your age. But um, I just, I, you know, one of the things I've noticed on social media lately, and this affirms that, that we just don't really recognize ageism a lot is that well, people will put a post and they'll say things that are very ageist and not even realize it. So a popular one is they'll put up a, a meme about boomers and it right. will hey, be boomer. really insulting. Like, you know, the boomers are anti-immigration, just everything bad. And it's on like a boomer meme. And so I want, this happened with one of my colleagues she put it up. So professor, you know, you would think would be not, would be aware of stereotypes and things like that. And so I called her and said, you know, in a comment, like, I think this is ageist to, to say like boomers are unenlightened. There's people who are unenlightened of all ages. She's like, oh, I didn't even like think of that as being ageist. And then another example, somebody put up recently, um, they were telling stories about bad experiences. And in the description, the person kept saying, and then this old woman did this, and then this old guy did that. And one of the things I said to her, and this woman's in her 50s or 60s, and I said, you know, if you told that story and you put in black or Hispanic, wouldn't that be a problem? Wouldn't people like jump all right. over you? Because you don't need that description for your story of the bad person. And if you did put it in, people would be mad because we don't, we, we've gotten to the state where we know that it's not helpful for anyone to put in the racial identity of somebody in order to like tell a bad story. It's a person who did a, who did right. something that was annoying to you. And so uh, the more that I encounter people like this innocent, like, Oh, that's ages. I didn't know it. Um, it makes me think, we have a lot of work to do. So maybe some of the, the blatant things are, are going away. Um, I talk about a show called Cool Kids um, that was on Fox. They were trying to, to make it be the new Golden Girls. And I think a lot of people felt that it didn't work because it was just trying to pull out every age joke that's already out there. And it I think maybe that was why it did fall flat where, where people were like, ah, that's sort of half-baked, you know? So maybe that's the progress. And there, there is better television um, and better films and certainly literature um, that features older people. So to me, that's, that's the hope that we can see the complexity of being and stop putting labels on generations that are that don't are not helpful for anybody the dynamic of internalized isms of whatever kind is always interesting to kind of check yourself but with this this is one that you know hopefully we're all going to be old enough to experience ageism at some point so checking our internalization of what that means to ourselves and and how much we're spreading it ourselves. Uh, and maybe that's a reaction to the fear of, you know, our own futures for people who haven't reached that age yet. You uh, talk about, and, and I mentioned 
positive stereotypes. You talked about the um, word wisdom and that that's kind of a loaded one too. Why is that? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised to come on that. And, and it's interesting, um, this Ashton Applewhite who wrote a book and has a blog, This Chair Rocks, um, she answers questions all the time about ageism. And so I just saw recently on Twitter that someone had said, is it wrong to, like, to immediately assume somebody is wise because they're older? And I think that the, the problem with it is that I'm sure there are people who are older who are wise, but to just have the expect, expectation that they are going to be like a guru of some sort just for having lived a long life, that also is kind of generalizing and uh, it fits into a stereotype of like the wise older elder person. Um, and I, I just continue to believe that generalizations and expectations, they take away from individuality. And that is the problem, I think, with it. I mean, uh, we could use better listening to older people to figure out who are, who, who does have wisdom that is worth listening to, um, but to just immediately put them on, sort of puts them in a box or a category. And a lot of people don't want to do that. A lot of people don't necessarily want to be labeled in advance just because of reaching a chronological age. Looking at some of your uh, respondents to your survey, you, you wrote that several of the survey respondents talked about reconnecting with adult children or connecting in a different way and wishing that their adult children would let go of the past. Um, and did the people that you spoke with feel that it would be useful at that time frame to delve into the past again to work through it? Or were they saying we should just let it go, start over, clean slate, new relationship at this period in life? Yeah, um, that, that is um, an issue that is completely, you know, kind of at the center of that. Um, I don't know if I had great details about that. The message that I just had in several surveys was just wanting to move forward. So, and perhaps if there was more willingness to get in the muck, you know, deal with, deal with the, the past, maybe it would be easier for it to do. I think that the messages that I remember were mostly, that was so long ago, like why live in the past? Things have changed. You know, the adult, the, the, the um, parent has changed. Why not just deal with the present? But um, yeah, um, I came across really different viewpoints on the part of adult children where some can just forgive and forget and accept the person where they are now or what the person needs and others who they just want to hold on to their hurt and they're not ready to give it up. And I, you know, one of the things I talk about in that chapter on adult children is that uh, people in our society have a lot of pressure to like, to have a happy ending, you know? And so there's like societal pressure. Oh, just forgive the person, you know? Was it really that bad? Maybe you're not remembering it correctly. And it's hard because 
um, people's wounds are their wounds. And if they're, if it stayed with them for 40, whatever, however long, many years, um, that has now become like a part of their, their being. And so to just, for somebody on the outside to say, toss it aside and move on is, you know, it, it, I think it's, it's easier said than done. And, um, and so, yeah, I found that, that chapter to be really fascinating. Why people are good to their, their parents later on in life and why some feel as if they have no obligation and it's not always related to how they were treated. Hmm. And that fascinated me, you yeah, know, that yeah. there were people who were treated horribly, who treat their parents well later on in life and probably some who were treated quite well, but who also live across the country are just not on the front lines. And so they're not giving that much to help their parents um, as needed. This is Amy Brown filling in for Peg Cruikshank on All About Aging, talking with Dr. Ellen Lem, author of Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, people who are not dealing with adult children are what you call uh, solo uh, solo flyers, solo agers. Yeah, solo agers. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was really interested in some of the informal networks that you described that people have put together to uh, to not be alone in their older age. Can you talk about what some of your respondents are doing and how they've uh, put to, or in, in your research what you found, not just from your respondents, of different ways that people have put together uh, supports and uh, mutual support kind of living situations. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that have been cropping up are something called villages, and um, that is an informal network of people um, who live uh, with in an area where there are a lot of other older people as well, and the basically they're kind of pool resources in order to help each other. So if somebody has skills, they're offered, they're part of this network that communicate everything from, um, uh, there's a good morning club that wakes people up so they hear, they talk during the day that they're not just home watching television. There's a a group that will say good morning, check in, see how people are doing, but then the other people, one, one will have good computer skills and those will be shared amongst um, people who are part of this village network, um, or they may have like a nurse who comes, so people don't have to go to the doctor, will come to a certain residence. So um, that was one example of uh, how, um, how people are, who don't have a lot of children to do things for, you know, to run out on errands and stuff like that, how they are, they are working together a similar situation or something called NORCs, which are their naturally occurring retirement communities. And those are places where a lot of older people just live. They didn't intend to like be with other older people, but they, that's where they find themselves. And they're everywhere from like trailer parks to um, small towns, um, cities, and also within Norks, they're all very similar to the villages where 
a network is set up, people um, contribute what they have to offer, um, and there's just friends take on the role, friends or people in the community take on the role that adult children would, would normally do, which, you know, if a person can't go to the store, will pick up groceries. And um, so it's almost like a, like a form of a kibbutz uh, in Israel, you know, like a somewhat, uh, I don't know, socialism is a, is a scary word for people, but there is a way in which I think maybe people feel safer with community and that helps. I guess one other thing I did learn in the solo ager chapter is how important though it is to have, to make a point somebody, like a legal role to make choices on the part of like what a person might need to do with a, um, with a will or a, uh, to, you know, an ethical will about things, because, which I never really thought about before. But normally, if a person is incapacitated, their offspring gather together or, you know, spouse together to make those decisions. But they don't have children, which is a lot of people, um, as I indicated in the book, who who did not have children by choice, um, there's nobody to make those decisions. So it's like really important that steps are made in order to have somebody who is trustworthy be your legal representative to make those decisions. You mentioned that some folks are actually, I don't know if they're doing this on their own or if it's a program that's giving them Alexa and other smart speakers to use for company or to call for help. I, what did you think about that? And how common is that? Right. Um, well, I, I think it's becoming more common. And I think that with COVID, we're, we're seeing greater reliance on technology. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about um, the companionship, like if it would, would do that role. I think I mentioned also a, a very popular novel in um, from Denmark about this secret diary of Hendrik Groen. It was like an international bestseller and in it about uh, he writes his diary about um, you know life in his 80s and he talks about robot caretakers coming and uh, and how they take care of some of the the needs of residents in his um, building but um, and so and he had a very mixed view of it. And I thought that's probably what a lot of people feel. Um, some people are more comfortable, I think, with having technology come in. Um, I can just, I know like my mom, she asked for an Alexa for a, a gift. And she actually does talk to Alexa um, in, you know, what's the weather today? Sing, put on a happy song and things like that. So I think maybe if I didn't see my mom's personal bond with her Alexa, I would be more of a disbeliever, but it does, it does have some function. Um, it is another person to be, to respond to, to uh, uh, look things up. You know, if the person doesn't feel super comfortable um, doing the internet, I mean, Alexa will, will serve that function. My mom will say, what are the headlines of the Wall Street Journal today? You know, so rather than have to like walk to the store, or go to the library, find a copy of the Wall Street Journal or know what link to put in the computer, 
Alexa will just, oh, today's headlines are so-and-so. So I do think there, that there's some possibilities, um, and I don't feel like we've even reached our full capacity yet. So um, I don't think machines will ever take the place of a human, but I think that they can, um, they can help. They can help be a voice uh, so that people are less lonely since the effects of loneliness are, you know, really, really severe and, you know, are the equivalent of like smoking. I think it was like 15 cigarettes a day. If people are, are having severe loneliness, that's the kind of negative health effect it has on people. I had to uh, Google this and I probably could have just asked you because you're an English professor, but it uh, reminded me of something I read more years ago than I care to admit. So I had to Google and it was Ray Bradbury's The Veld, I think, the short story about um, just sort of the all automated home that kind of takes over and goes wrong. Um, That's just what I worry about with something like that. But that's just my personal take on it. If, but if people are finding it to be helpful, at least as far as security and getting help, it seems like it could be useful in that way and, and information-wise. For me, I've never even been able to use Siri on my phone with it ever understanding what I'm asking it. So right. I, I think if I had an Alexa, I'd probably dropkick the thing. But um, so, uh, but in continuing to talk about housing, uh, you in Gray Matters cite a study by uh, AARP that found that 90% of the respondents in their study said that institutions are not the appropriate place for elders to spend their final moments, months, or years. Uh, the survey responses for your book also mirrored those findings with dozens of seniors answering that one of their worst fears was ending their lives in a nursing home and you, uh, in the critiques of nursing homes have persisted over the years. And right now, on top of all of that, you have the added fears of, you know, COVID in these congregate living facilities with a lot of older folks. But you did talk about um, intergenerational co-housing as an alternative, a growing alternative, and greenhouses. Um, what are what are some of those you started to touch on some of the living situations but what are the greenhouses or the green homes and how did the intergenerational co-housing alternatives work are those people intergenerations of the same family or just different people coming together in an intentional community yeah well greenhouses i think are are really fascinating and um, my father-in-law spent some time in it so i do have a little bit of experience directly from from uh, what he went through. But so they were the brainchild of this Bill Thomas, who is thought by most to be uh, one of the most innovative thinkers on uh, nursing homes and transforming them. And so Greenhouse's idea behind them is to not have people in big, impersonal institutions, a lot of changing staff, but to put people in houses, if you know, more like a home-like structure where people have their own room, but maybe there's a communal eating area. The staff are don't change so often. So when people cook, they cook what people want. You know, not like what a kitchen does when they're making 300 meals and things like that. One of the things that like uh, Thomas discovered in creating these greenhouses is that they don't have to be more expensive, that they can still take what um, a Medicaid 
would provide uh, for them. Uh, it's just kind of cutting out a lot of the things that maybe a for-profit nursing home would have. Um, the neat thing too about the greenhouses is that sometimes now they are according to um, a certain group. They're, vet they're ones for veterans. There are ones for LGBTQ individuals. Um, and uh, so they're not always that, but they are making ones for populations so that people can feel comfortable with others who may have similar experiences. And so um, I think it's a, a wonderful idea um, if people want to be in a house, but it's dangerous to be in a house and there's not enough care and it's lonely being in a house, the greenhouse is an alternative. Um, and then as far as the intergenerational co-housing, um, I think it is both. I mean, I think right now there are more people living in intergenerational households than maybe there has ever been. And so some of that's been the economy. And now of course with COVID, we've got all kinds of generations coming back together. So um, I think that uh, we live in a society that is so independence oriented, you know, and we're into our nuclear family and things like that. But I think that circumstances have reminded us that it's actually really nice to be with your family, um, people who know you better than anyone else. And then they've seen studies about how elders actually thrive more when they are in households that are intergenerational. So some are within families, but the co-housing movement, which is catching on, it's, I'd say it's more in places, um, I know in California has been one of the leader of, of the places, but um, you know, we talked earlier about socialism and sort of like a commune situation um, and uh, they are run on some of those principles of you can have your own space, but there is collectively a lot of people there. You don't have to do everything yourself. Right now, people are scrambling for childcare um, and things like that. You live in an intergenerational co-housing. Maybe the retired person will be willing to do to watch the child. They get to bond. Um, a new study just came out. It wasn't included in the book because it just recently came out that one of the factors they're seeing for longevity is exposure to intergenerational relationships. The more intergenerational relationships people had, the longer they lived. So um, the idea of having a housing where people eat meals together, um, they help each other out, similar to the villages in the North, uh, it takes away from the pressure of I, as an individual, have to do everything myself. I have to like do my job. I have to take care of my kids. I have to take care of, of family members. It, it really consolidates a lot of that and recognizes that um, more people can take care of each other and they don't, it takes some of the burden off of having to be the sole provider of all of that by oneself. It brings things back to where they were at some point in the past before. And for some reason, my, my microphone just quit on me there. I was starting to say that uh, brings things back to where they were for some cultures at some point in the past where people tended to move less away from where they 
were born. And so there were multi-generations and aunts and uncles and people to look out for everyone. Uh, you're listening to All About Aging on WERUFM. I'm Amy Brown filling in for Pay Crookshank this month. We're talking with Dr. Ellen Lem, author of the new book, Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. Uh, a contrasting, uh, you write in, in Gray Matters, a contrasting example of how environmental impacts, how environment impacts those with dementia comes from an essay by Peg Shank, also known as Margaret, more formally, who befriended octogenarian Frida Walter when Crookshank ran a course at a senior college, a senior center called All About Aging, which also is the name of this show that she also originated and hosts. Frida displayed signs of severe dementia at times, example, walking around with an IRS, with IRS form showing them to people and telling stories of a wealthy man who was coming to give her money. But at other times, she was able to tell detailed stories of her family's experiences living in Nazi Germany. A cousin who became the conservator for Frida and a social worker decided that she needed to be in an institution and was placed, she was placed on an Alzheimer's floor. Crookshank saw that uh, once placed on a dementia ward by people who hadn't the time or interest or skill to determine the real condition of her mental processes, the deterioration became obvious and sadly rationalized her placement there. She went from being a non-medicated person who loved to dance and have friendly exchanges with people she encountered as she walked around the city to someone highly medicated at the facility, depressed and greatly limited by her surroundings. And you write that uh, Crookshank's experiences with Frida and others during her time at the senior center influenced her belief echoed by other notable gerontologists that each person who has dementia is, is unique. And in your book, you cite several examples of this and how uh, memory loss is to different degrees. I know if Peg were here, she would like to just, she likes to emphasize that people sometimes experience some early stages of some memory loss or cognitive disruption and become worried that that's permanent or it's definitely going to be progressive when it's not necessarily either of those things. So um, you talked to your survey respondents and also looked at how dementia is portrayed in, in literature and films. What are, what are some of the things that you learned from all of that? Um, well, you know, I did learn that it is a extreme fear that people have that they are going to have um, Alzheimer's and that there isn't um, statistically as much reason or justification for that extreme fear. And I think part of the, the fear is that we do live in a world where we value independence and um, self-sufficiency so the idea of like not being able to, to take care of oneself completely is just, you know, I, I've heard many people and it was echoed in some of the literature as well. People just say, I'd rather die than lose my, than lose my mind. And so I think that one of the things that I learned and I tried to put through in the chapter is to not think about um, having dementia as losing everything, that to remind people that there's still a lot of the human being that's still there. And through connecting with Ann Basting, uh, my colleague at UWM, 
who won the like MacArthur Genius Award for her innovative use of creative arts with people who have Alzheimer's, um, storytelling, putting on plays, um, all kinds of uh, art, art shows at the art museum. This is all done with people who have um, Alzheimer's and it really challenged the view. We always think about like what the person doesn't have they don't recognize me or they don't, you know, they're not able to balance their checkbook anymore. Well, what do they still have? When I went and witnessed the group um, that is tied to basting, it's called Time Slips. It's an international now movement. Um, and I went and I observed um, to see the people who are in the adult daycare center who have Alzheimer's see them visiting with the children who came from a nearby school and the hugs and the touch and the smiles on their face. There's so much tenderness and emotion. And, you know, that's what people don't remember. They don't remember that they're still human beings, that people um, are, have, are very sexual still sometimes, um, even when they have Alzheimer's. And so I really feel that for me, I learned a lot about why it's not necessarily terrifying and why that we need to have kind of a wider view of what dementia is, um, especially since there's really no magic cure. People are, are tinkering with different ideas, but there still has not been medication or a foolproof treatment of it. So it, it is here to stay, although it actually is going down. Um, I do mention that in the book, and I've seen recent data as well. We look like we're going to have more cases just because we have more older people, but the amount um, per capita actually is going down in it. Uh, so I think, you know, everybody could could learn about um, that we can still learn from people who have dementia. And I was happy to include several works that were written by people who had uh, Alzheimer's diagnoses, who uh, told us what it was like for them. And it was often different than what their caretakers thought. And that was a point that I made in, in Gray Matters as well, that a lot of our view of Alzheimer comes from the caretaker who is seeing the beloved person be not who they once were and involving a lot of care. And, uh, and so oftentimes the word burden comes up where people are like, I don't want to be a burden and they think of themselves as a burden. But some of that is comes because what we know about Alzheimer's often comes from the caretaker's perspective. And the research shows that the person who has Alzheimer's thinks they have a higher quality of life than the person who's caring for them. So I think that that was interesting. Yeah, that's, a, that's really a fascinating finding. One thing that people are very afraid of and more afraid of than death, you write, is not having enough money, money to live on. Finances comes up throughout Gray Matters in a, in a lot of different contexts and uh, uh, especially, you know, in context of the political situation we're in, where there may be threats to Social Security and Medicare, and a lot of people completely depending on them, uh, we could do an entire show, we could do an entire series on these issues, but, and just, uh, you know, having a few minutes left, 
what are some of, and, and people can read about this, obviously the book came out last month, so you can read about this in Gray Matters yourself, but what are some of the um, high point takeaways and maybe low point takeaways from the financial situation that people are finding, financial situations that people are finding themselves in as there are more of us moving into that older age bracket and live, tending to live longer? Right. Um, well, I think what, what seemed to be hard for a lot of people is just not knowing how much is enough, how much, you know, first of all, it's just difficult to save. Um, you know, those um, people are, have kind of a, a less, doing less well in terms of standard of living right now, just in general, than they did in the past, like being able to own property and things like that. So the idea of saving is difficult, but even those who are putting away, it's difficult to know. And I saw this in the surveys where people say, yeah, I have a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank, but like, I have no idea. And then reading stories of people who had maybe half a million or a million dollars, but had some kind of health emergency that took like all their money away. And, and some of the nursing homes, assisted living are very expensive too. So so that's really hard to know, you know, we don't, people don't know how long they're going to live and then, and how much money that they will need to sustain them, especially since um, medical costs can come up and may not all be covered. So that's scary. And that I can, I can definitely see um, that the idea of not having enough money. Um, it was interesting to come across people in the surveys some who are um, being helped out by their children and um, who maybe feel embarrassed about it. But it was interesting when I went to an aging conference um, in China, that's the norm. Like most parents are being, are being helped by their children. There's also some parents who are, uh, who are older parents who are helping to fund their, their adult children's lives, you know, and things like that. So Money is very complicated, and then you introduce into the fold second and third marriages. Um, so there's the inheritance issue of, you know, does money go to the children from an earlier marriage? Does it go to the spouse? So um, a lot of unknowns, and that's why I think it is so scary. Um, I think maybe the biggest takeaway for me was that more women end up poorer than men. You know, it's 80% of those who are in poverty are women. And just sort of find out why. And I do talk about that a little bit. Um, all of the women who took time out to say, oh, I'll help, I'll raise, you know, I'll, I'll you keep working to their husband if they're in, you know, partnerships and um, I'll, t I'll just sort of uh, opt out for a while. Uh, that's lost less social security. That's very difficult eventually to then get promotions from taking time off. Um, so there is a reason for it. Um, but I do think that's something that the people should know about that um, many more women end up in poverty um, from divorces. Women end up with less money, less um, good financial shape from it. So uh, this is definitely a book for people at all stages of life to learn from, you know, and that's really one of my most important takeaways. Um, uh, I'm thrilled and delighted. I know of 
you know, probably 15 or 20 people in their 80s who are reading the book now, and they tell me that I got it right. And so that is extremely rewarding. I love it every time I hear that um, almost everybody in my mom's apartment building, they're all reading the book. Um, That's and great. It's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. But I really feel that this is a book that on every different stage in life that could uh, help people figure out uh, how they want to be when they're older, even though, uh, as uh, Margaret Cruikshank says in her book, and I agree as well, luck is a huge component of how it's going to be. But still, there is some takeaway about uh, what can help people to lead a more meaningful later life that uh, will be advice wherever anybody's at um, on the kind of age spectrum. Right. And we have just touched on the surface of so many different aspects that you go into in so much more depth. So check it out. I I've thoroughly enjoyed it. The book is Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. It was just published last month by Rutgers University Press. I assume people can find it in all the usual places. Definitely. Yep. It's, uh, you know, Amazon, they can get it from Rutgers and our local bookstores also, some will have it. They can easily order it. So um, it's available. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking time to join us today. Dr. Ellen Lem, author of the new book, Again, Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is Amy Brown filling in for Peg Cruikshank here on All About Aging on WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming live at WERU.org where you can also find archives of our locally produced news and public affairs programs.